Amen. Wow. What a lead-in to our message this morning, which is entitled, Good God. As the children make their way downstairs, we are going to continue our hike through Habakkuk this morning, um, continue to take a dive in the deep end, and again, our message is entitled, Good God. You know, we've all heard that expression, but probably never thought about exactly where it came from. I tried to trace that this week. And you go back to sort of the etymology, the beginning of, of where, you know, this euphemism came from. And uh, although it was difficult to trace, many believe that it was more of a question in the beginning than an exclamation. Are you with me? Questioning the goodness of God in the difficult face of disaster or tragedy. Good God. You know, we see the devastation from Hurricane Michael, Hurricane Florence, other natural disasters, trains blown off their tracks, houses swept off their foundations, innocent lives lost, and we say, good God. And in doing so, we're either reminding ourselves that God is good, are you with me? regardless of what we see, or we are questioning His goodness. Today we're going to pull out of the verse-by-verse text in Habakkuk that we've been walking through, and we're going to look honestly at the overarching theme of this book that weaves in and out of all three chapters. And I hope, as I've challenged you early on in this series, that you've read These three chapters in Habakkuk, you can literally read this book in 10 or 15 minutes at the most. And I hope you've done so, and I hope that the context uh, and and the the, the ground that we have have, have plowed before you has helped you to get a picture of exactly what's going on there. These three chapters are packed with what C.S. Lewis called the problem of pain. How many of you have read that book? Lewis wrote a book called The Problem of Pain. I did uh, my thesis on that book for my degree in philosophy and religion about a quarter century ago. So it's been a long time. But And I'll go back to that book from time to time and look at it. If you remember uh, reading that book, it, it's it's challenging read. It really is. But there is so much in it that C.S. Lewis, in a way that only he can do, boils down the theology of pain and suffering for us in a way that absolutely made sense to me and was transforming for me. The problem of pain, it's also in theological circles known as theodicy. It's the dilemma of reconciling the pain and suffering and injustice we see in this world with the character of an all-loving and all-powerful God. God, if you love me so much, why do you allow me to hurt so much? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do the innocent starve while the righteous, the unrighteous, 
prosper. Many have walked away from the faith or refused to come near it because they could not reconcile the problem of pain. Theologians have wrestled with it for centuries. Job came to a profound place of surrender with these words. He said, though he slay me, yet will I what? Trust him. Habakkuk comes to that same place of surrender in these three chapters in the midst of the suffering surrounding him. He's confused. He's struggling to understand the events that are unfolding in his nation. He has served the Lord faithfully as a prophet in the temple court for the king, yet he watches his nation fall into ruin as those in power become more and more corrupt As a brutal enemy, the Babylonians prepare to take God's people captive. And he cries out for help. He shakes his fist at God's apparent apathy. And then he positions himself as we should, even in the midst of our misunderstanding or not understanding or our confusion, he positions himself to hear God's response. God does respond. And God tells him that the Babylonians will be his hand of judgment against a people who have led a righteous nation into ruin. Hear that. And in a good God moment, Habakkuk articulates the problem of pain. He says, God, your eyes, I don't don't get it. Wait a minute. This doesn't compute for me. He said, God, your eyes are too pure to look on this. What's going on? You can't tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate this mess? Treacherous. Why are you silent, God, while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? How many of you in some way, form, or fashion have prayed that prayer. That is the problem of pain. Habakkuk is struggling to reconcile who he believes God to be with the suffering he sees in and around him. It's a hard place to be, and it often takes us to a crisis of belief. Am I still going to trust This God, even though what I'm seeing with my eyes doesn't seem to fit with the character that I believe that he has. Am I still going to continue on this journey? Though he slay me, will I trust him? It's a place like Habakkuk was in of questioning the character and the goodness of God. It's interesting how the Lord then responds to Habakkuk here. And I think we can learn a lot from it. He pulls Habakkuk above the immediate circumstances in this book. When God responds, he pulls Habakkuk up out of the pain, out of the suffering, to give him a bigger picture of what he, God, is doing. In chapter 1, verse 5, in response to Habakkuk's complaint, if you will, 
God says, look at the nations and be utterly amazed. And so he pulls him back out of his own misery, out of his own questioning, out of his own pain. And he said, I want you to look at the big picture. He said, look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. He says, I am raising up the... This is not good news. He says, I'm raising up the Babylonians. Vicious, vile people. That ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. So he's giving Habakkuk this bird's eye view of his plan, his purpose, and what's going on around him. And then he gives Habakkuk this laundry list of horrors that will arrive with the Babylonians. It's horrifying. Nothing but pain as far as the eye can see. Habakkuk continues his complaint at the end of chapter 1. And then he vows to watch and wait once again for God's reply. He positions himself to hear from the Lord. He doesn't walk away. And then the Lord gives him an even bigger picture of the ultimate destruction Not of Jerusalem and Judah, but the ultimate destruction of the one who would destroy Jerusalem and Judah. He gives him this picture of what he is going to do to bring justice about to destroy the Babylonians. And then in chapter 2, it ends with an assurance of God's sovereignty. It's where we stopped last week. It says, the Lord is in his temple. He's not been caught off guard. He knows. He has a plan. He has a purpose. Let all the earth be silent before Him. Before His sovereignty. Before His holiness. To know that He is in control regardless of what we see. Regardless of what we feel, regardless of the circumstances that surround us and how much they look like he's not, he is in control. And seeing this big picture as we move through the book seems to soothe Habakkuk. As it certainly has me in the past when I've been able in the midst of my own pain to to pull out of that pain And God reminds me that He's in control. That He is sovereign. The righteous, He tells Habakkuk, will live by what? Faith. Not by what? Sight. The righteous will live by faith. Rewind. He said the same thing. That righteousness would be credited to Abraham by what? Faith. That it is faith that brings us into an eternal relationship with Jesus Christ who has paid the price for our sin and ultimately reconciles us to the Father, putting an end to sin, death, and the grave. Faith. And Habakkuk says in chapter 3, Lord, I have heard of your fame. Man, I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. I'm sticking with you. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known In wrath, remember mercy. That's pointing to the cross. In wrath, 
is Habakkuk's prayer. He's praying this to God. God, in wrath, remember mercy. And pain is virtually impossible to reconcile when you are in the midst of it. You ever figured that out? Man, you just want it to stop. It's hard to see a bigger picture when you're hurting. And that's why it is so important for us as followers of Jesus Christ to develop a biblical world view. To seek week in and week out, hopefully proactively before the bottom falls out, to understand the big picture that God has in play. To know what this book says, to know where it goes, to know how it ends. So that we don't feel like we're victims in the midst of it. God is in control. And every follower of Jesus Christ needs to know and understand that. And develop that big picture biblical world view that reassures us of that. Because His word is truth. We need to develop that world view. To read the book, to get the big picture, and know that within that frame, there will be pain. Where's the good news, Phil? We're getting to it. Peter put it this way. I mean, we don't this stuff. We don't hear this preached. Peter put it this way. He said, "Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial that you're suffering, as though something strange were happening to you." In other words, expect it. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow His steps. In other words, a life void of suffering seldom conforms to the likeness of Christ. Are you with me? We don't like to hear that. Honestly, our whole lives, especially in this culture that we live in, are wrapped around the avoidance of what? Suffering. We don't like pain. And so we try to to, to position our lives in such a way that, that we avoid it all. But when we do that, and we don't have a proper perspective on pain, we do not conform to the likeness of Jesus Christ. Suffering is the crucible of Christ's likeness. It's the flame that burns the chafe away, that refines us into the very character of Jesus. You cannot read the Bible and miss that reality. It's not a popular message. Even in the church today where preachers make promises that God never made. Health and wealth. You got your sights set on that? And that alone? You're in for disappointment. And from the Holocaust to the hurricane, the Scripture is clear on the origin of pain. If 
Phil, i got questions. I don't get it. And we all have questions. But the Scripture provides us with the big picture. It provides us with an understanding of why things are the way they are. And they are the way they are because all of creation is fallen and flawed. Romans 8, Paul said this. He said, for the creation. He said, where do these hurricanes come from? You tell me. I mean, this has nothing to do with sin. Yeah, it does. What are earthquakes? What, what's going on? Even the laws of nature itself are corrupted by sin. Paul said, For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. Who subjected it? Adam. Not God. See, we live in a fallen, sin-soaked, pain-permeated world because of Adam's original disobedience In the garden, sin entered the world and all of God's creation fell into a corrupt and chaotic state. Genesis 3. That's where it began. That's where this mess began. I remember driving through the streets of Port-au-Prince in 2010. Tom, I think you you were on that trip. It was apocalyptic. Right after the earthquake, man, we just kind of parachuted in with a a group of folks um, from 410 Bridge on a vision trip. We got there at night. We're driving through the streets uh, of Port-au-Prince. The rubble is just stacked. I mean, you know, bigger, bigger than this building. They barely made ways where you could drive through the city. There are fires here and there. The smells are just things that you've never smelled before. There are literally bodies still decaying beneath the rubble that that were unable, thousands of them, to be pulled out. 250,000 people lost their lives in that earthquake. No power, no food, no water. I can remember driving through downtown Port-au-Prince and looking around and just people were walking aimlessly through the streets. And I, I think I remember asking Tom or one of the, that's like, where are they all going? Just these blank stares on their face. There's nowhere to go. But yet they just wandering around aimlessly. And I remember thinking, good God. What is this? With a question mark. And then God pulling me back to the big picture. And remembering that sin, not God, created the portal for pain to enter this world. It's not by God's design. By man's decision. Don't miss that. Paul said this. He said, Sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, also suffering and pain, which ultimately leads to death. And in this way, death came to all men. Because all have sinned and what? Fallen short 
of the glory of God. It's not God's design. His design was the garden. It's man's decision. It's your decision. It's my decision. It's the decisions that we make daily that either honor Him or dishonor Him. Pain finds its origin in the choice of man, not the character of God. Don't forget that. LifeWay just published a new study this week. Huge new study with Barna Research. It's on American evangelicals, um, Bible-believing Christians in this country. It's fascinating. They found that 52% of Christians in this country believe that most people are basically good. Some of you are fifty. Over half of the people sitting in churches this morning believe that most people are basically good. No wonder so many believers question the goodness of God. They don't understand the depravity of man. Fundamental. Basic theology. If you just read the first three chapters of the book, we are depraved. We are separated from God at birth. There is none of us righteous, not one, the Bible says, we are but filthy rags before Him. That's how much you need Jesus. That's how much I need Jesus. Now, I think we're all pretty good. That mentality will take us to hell in a handbasket. We ain't good. And I'm going to tell you, if you hadn't noticed, this thing ain't getting better and better. And the Bible tells us it's not going to get better and better. But there will come a day. The suffering we see around us does not originate from the character of God. It emanates from the hearts of men. You say, well, Phil, why, why doesn't God just wave His magic wand make it all go away? That's what, that's what people... Why doesn't God just fix it? That was Habakkuk's original question. And that's the question posed by so many who don't look at the big picture. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, if you try to exclude the possibility of suffering in this world, which the order of nature, the fallen order of nature, and the existence of choice, the existence of free wills involve, and you find that you have excluded life itself. If there is no suffering in this context, in this fallen world, with the choice that God has given and gifted to mankind, there is. God has given us the freedom to choose His way or our own way. Authentic relationship demands a choice. If your wife has no choice but to stay with you, is that a relationship? If your husband has absolutely no choice but to stay with you, is that a relationship? Absolutely not. 
What are you choosing, Ron? No, I'm just kidding. Wait, wait. Ron didn't know he had a choice. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I'm sorry, Faye. Uh, I've enlightened him. Yeah, you were doing so good. How long y'all been married? 59 years. And then cats out of the bag. Man. Authentic relationship demands a choice. I mean, we wouldn't want it any other way. But with that freedom to choose comes the possibility of poor choices. And with poor choices, pain enters the picture. That's the reality we live in. But the good news for the faithful is this, that God exploits pain for His redemptive purpose. Romans eight twenty eight. that's what the Apostle Paul is talking about right here. When we don't walk away, when we trust Him anyway, we can say that we know that in all things God works for the good of those who loved Him, who have been called according to His purpose. In other words, for those who trust Him, God always brings purpose out of our pain. He never wastes a hurt. Where do you need to remember that today? And trust Him anyway. What God shows Habakkuk in these visions, in these three chapters, is a shadow of what will ultimately be His grand solution. And that is the cross of Jesus Christ. Where perfect love and perfect justice meet once and for all to defeat the greatest enemy. Sin, death, and the grave. And ultimately that takes us to a day that we read about in Revelation. A day when He will wipe every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death. There will be no more mourning. There will be no more crying. There will be no more pain. He promises us that. When the old order of things completely passes away. Until then we say, God is good. God is good. And we cling to His character regardless of our circumstances. We stand in the shadow of the cross recognizing that in Christ He has answered Habakkuk's prayer. In wrath, God, remember mercy. Let's bow our heads. God, help us to reframe our pain. Lord, help us to trust you in the midst of it. To know that you, Lord, are sovereign that you have our best interest at heart, no matter what it feels like or what it looked like. Lord, that you care. That you've got a plan. God, give us faith to persevere and have faith in the midst of the difficulties that we cannot understand. Lord Jesus, we thank you for taking sin and death, what we deserved, upon Yourself for offering us the gift of salvation that comes through the cross where perfect love and perfect justice met once and for all. Help us to move forward faithfully and be witnesses, be salt and light in this world as Your children. And it's in Jesus' name I pray.